Well, here we are. We've made it to episode 25. We are a quarter of the way to 100. Uh, And I just wanted to pause and and thank you all so much for being listeners. Um, It is so encouraging for me to uh, see so many of you uh, tuning in every week. Um, I I, I really believe in this podcast and the goal of bringing these conversations to teachers, and um, I hope you do too. but uh, if you have any suggestions for how I can improve this show, uh, any thoughts as to future guests or future topics um, that you would like to hear, I am all ears, and I would love to hear them from you. So uh, if you could, um, send me an email directly at john at jabadoo.com. That is J-O-N at jabadoo.com, because um, I would love to hear any of those suggestions that you might have. Um, but we've got an episode to get to. So... Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, episode 25. A lot of our mission statements talk about uh, how we're supposed to be developing good citizens and contributing members of society, but yet children are not allowed to be democratic members of their own schools or classrooms. You can't develop democratic citizens in a place where democracy is absent. If kids have no voice and no autonomy within the system, we, we can't expect them at 18 to just magically graduate and know how to participate in a, in a democratic system. Uh, and so we need to we need to make this flip, uh, make this change in our system uh, in order to make sure that our democracy and our society is more healthy. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hello, teachers and educators, and you did it. We did it. (laughs) In the face of everything that has been uh, making this year so crazy, we are at winter break. Well, almost. (laughs) Um, And because of that, I just wanted to give you a heads up that I will be taking a short two-week intermission from this podcast following this episode um, as we celebrate the winter season. Um, So uh, the last two Mondays here in December, uh, Jabadoo will be taking a short hibernation, but uh, I already have some amazing conversations scheduled for you to continue season two on January 4th. Okay. Uh, But on this episode, I sit down with Mike Soskel. Uh, Mike is a veteran teacher, and you hear all about his accolades in our conversation, but um, the way I got linked up with Mike was actually through my mom, which was through the uh, Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year uh, group. Um, Mike was actually the 2017-2018 recipient of that award. And in our conversation today, we highlight um, an amazing international project he was able to do with his elementary students where... Uh, they they video conferenced with a school in uh, I think it was rural uh, Kenya, um, and they in that conference they learned that uh, the current bridge for that town was too dangerous for some of the kids to make it to school. So Mike's students set out to uh, design a bridge, send it to an engineer to get a quote for its construction, fundraise, and ultimately were able to uh, fund the build process for this bridge so that students could get to school safely in this town. Um, and I mean, how, how amazing is that? That that's just such an amazing story. Um, and we dive into that. Uh, and on top of his student success, we also, we also talk about, um, Mike has a new book that he has edited titled flip the system U S because it is part of a, uh, global flip the system series, but we dive into our current system here in the United States and how, 
information is decided at the national and state levels and pushed down to the districts, which then push it down to principals, which then push it down to teachers. But in a democratic system, the opposite should be true, right? So we talk about how teachers can begin to take back some of those decision-making processes um, and reality pass many of those decisions off to their students as well. So this episode is really jam-packed. Um, and you will definitely want to check out the show notes page because we will have everything linked up there. The show notes for this episode can be found at jabadoo.com slash show 25. And we are currently running a contest from now until December 31st, 2020 to win a $25 Teachers Pay Teachers gift card or and or a Jabadoo teacher tee of your choice. So if you've seen any of the uh, posts that I've been putting on social media, um, we've designed, I've got a friend from uh, high school who does amazing graphic design. Uh, she's put together these awesome teacher quote tees. So check those out. Um, and I'll be honest, at the time of this recording, I think I only have two entries so far. <laughs> so you actually have a really good chance of winning one of these two prizes. All you have to do is share this episode with, or, or any episode, uh, share it with a friend, family member, colleague, whoever should listen to it, and, um, and or go leave a rating and review on your platform of choice, screenshot it, and then send it to me again at jabadoo, or john at jabadoo.com, and I'll tally that all up, and the winner will be selected on January 1st, live on our Facebook page. So uh, for more details on that, visit jabadoo.com slash contest, or find the link on our show notes page. And finally, if you are interested in supporting some of the production costs that go into making this podcast, you can do that and get something in return by purchasing some Jabadoo original teacher tees, like I mentioned before, on our merchandise store, or uh, use one of the affiliate links to purchase any of the books that are talked about on this podcast episode or any other previous episodes. Um, again, everything that we talk about and all of this can be found on our show notes page, jabadoo.com slash show 25. Oh, let's get into our conversation with Mike Soskol. All right. Today's guest on the Jabadoo Education Podcast was the Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year in 2017-18. And since then, he's gone on to be a speaker, author, teacher, leader, and positive change agent being featured in the Washington Post, CBS NewsHour, Forbes, Huffington Post, and more, and has now spoken internationally, including at Oxford University and the United Nations Social Innovation Summit, and most recently has his own book out titled Flip the, Flip the System, How Teachers Can Transform Education and Save Democracy. So, Mike Soskill, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I should have asked it beforehand, but I say your last name correctly. Sasko, yeah, you got it. Sasko, okay. It. Yeah, thank you so much for joining uh, me on the podcast today. Um, I actually got introduced to you through my mom, who was the last uh, episode um, that just came out. And uh, you guys met, obviously, in the Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year uh, kind of community. Um, but you were, you were doing some really cool stuff um, over, the, over the last couple of years. Uh, I didn't mention it, but uh, you corrected me beforehand after or before even being Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year, you were also uh, awarded. A global, or, uh, yeah, a global teacher. I was actually a top, top 10. Uh, I was announced by Dr. Stephen Hawking as one of the top 10 teachers in the world and a finalist for the Global Teacher Prize. Uh, so I was actually in Dubai so for that ceremony. But yeah, yeah. I in my career. Yeah. 
It's so cool. Amazing. So um, you are a, a fellow Pennsylvania teacher here, obviously, Pennsylvania Teacher of the Year, mm -hmm. uh, teaching fourth and fifth grade STEM up in the Poconos, if anybody knows where that is, <laughs> up in <laughs> Wallen Popak. That's just a that's a great Pennsylvania name. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to our, uh, our uh, Native American Lenape roots, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, obviously, I mean, so many accolades that you've earned. Um, but before we get into that, I always like to take us back to the beginning. So uh, can you just highlight what was your experience as a student coming through the U.S. system? Um, some highs and lows and, and kind of what influenced you uh, to pursue, you know, a career, maybe not in education, but <laughs> whatever. Yes. Yeah, so, so I can I can honestly say that uh, I, uh, if you asked my elementary teachers or even high school teachers, um, you know, if they had any expectation of me going into education or becoming a teacher, they would be absolutely shocked that I'm here speaking to you on this <laughs> podcast today. Um, I was, I was a, I wasn't a terrible student grade wise, but I was the kind of student that just frustrated the heck out of teachers. Um, total, uh, I, I did nothing with my potential. I, I didn't do my homework. Um, you know, got through with B's and C's cause I was relatively intelligent, but, um, you know, really didn't have any focus or motivation in school. And, and I think in a lot of ways, remembering myself as a student and the ways that the system failed me and the ways that I was not engaged um, helps me remember how I want to do things differently in my own sure. classroom. Yeah. Yeah. So we were saying before you hit record that you didn't always want to be a teacher, <laughs> probably because of uh, maybe your experience, but um, coming through, is there a teacher that sticks out to you uh, in one way or another that you just have a memory about, you know, yeah. good or bad, it's either one's a good lesson. Yeah, um, no, I, I definitely the, the teachers that uh, that I remember um, having an impact were were positive. Um, I remember Mr. Epstein back in uh, fifth grade was the first teacher I ever had that taught me uh, coding, um, and that was back in the you know mid '80s. So it was that was pretty early on. Uh, you know, monochrome screen, learning Lego and, and how to how to make a turtle uh, turn on the screen. Um, but uh, but it wasn't the coding. It wasn't the content that made him uh, stand out. It was. Um, it was his ability to connect and build relationships, right? Which I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but we would have conversations about our favorite Twilight Zone episode. And <laughs> um, and it was him taking an interest in me personally. And, and I think that's what I try and remember in my own classroom, that each of my students, while it's my mission and my goal to, to make sure that they learn science or STEM or you know math, if I'm helping out in their math class, um, it's really making sure that they understand that I care about them and know that um, that school is a place where they can come and feel safe and, and develop those talents and passions so that they can matter and make a difference with them. Yeah. I think that is something that, um, that, that has come up so often on this podcast. And, um, more recently, I think with, uh, you know, some of the social, uh, changes that have, you know, come about in our country over the last couple months. Um, just the, the notion that those relationships are so important. I don't think that's hammered home enough when you're a college student pursuing, uh, a career in education. And, uh, you know, looking back on my college career, I kind of wish that, you know, I had a class all about creating relationships. You know, I, yeah. I feel like that would be such a, a powerful class. It's, it's absolutely true. And I think, you know, if we go back and, and look at the system, the education system as a whole, the, the real problem is that we never really ask the question um, in our pre-service classes or even to our teachers that are in service or, or administrators or school board members for that matter. What's the purpose of public education? Why are we educating students? Um, it's not to pass tests, right? Whether those tests are standardized tests or at the end of our units. Um, it's not even because we want our economy to thrive. I mean, that's part of it. 
you know, of course, that there has to be some economic benefit to the community that's paying for a public education. But really, public education is, is built on something much bigger than that. Um, it's making sure that our society uh, thrives, making sure that we have a healthy democracy, making sure that we have a healthy uh, community. And, you know, unless we look at education holistically like that, we can't answer the smaller questions. The questions about like, you know, what do I do in my classroom if, if students are struggling or, you know, should I should I really focus on this one piece of content when, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic? Mm -hmm. Th those questions become really hard to answer if you don't have a purpose, like a real understanding of that bigger purpose of why we're educating. And um, and I think over the course of my career, there's been a variety of different things that have pointed me back in that direction um, and helped me understand that true purpose, you know, better. Yeah. So, uh before we dive too deep into, uh, you know, the conversation that uh, I hope we can have here. Um, I mean, just as, as you were saying that, you know, maybe it's because it's fresh in my mind because I was looking over your website and you've, you've had, I don't know, eight, 12, 12 keynotes or whatever this is over. I, I, you just feel like, I feel like you just summarized probably six or seven of them there in that, in that three minute <laughs> passage. But um, before we get too far into it, uh, so coming out of high school, um, went to college. Uh, you said you didn't originally go for education. So what were you what were you going to be? Yeah, no, I, I actually I was an education major uh, right from the beginning. But I but I am not shy about saying that I went into education for all the wrong reasons. Um, <laughs> I, I as I said, I did not enjoy school. I'm not one of those people that like grew up you know teaching dolls and and knew that I wanted to be in a classroom. Yeah. Uh, I I pretty much um, couldn't stand being in school. It was not something that I enjoyed. Uh, but I loved playing soccer. I you know and I knew that I wanted to do that. And actually, I had started coaching um, early in my high school career when I was like 14 or 15. I started coaching youth youth teams like you know under eight. Um, and I loved working with those kids. And I didn't realize it was because. I love working with kids. I thought it's because I love the game. Right. Um, it wasn't until later on when I got into my own classroom as a student teacher, where I said, Oh, <laughs> you know, now, now I understand really. <laughs> right. You know, it, it wasn't the soccer that I loved, although I do. Um, it was, um, it was, it was, you know, working with kids and helping them develop as individuals and, and become their best selves. Um, and so things started changing and I actually, you know, I, so I, I went into teaching to coach um, and I did, I started the, the girls soccer program at the high school uh, where I, you know, in the district where I teach. Um, and for the first, you know, 10 years of that program, I, I really thought of myself as a soccer coach first. And, and I'm not also not shy about saying I was really good at being a mediocre teacher for the first half of my career. <laughs> it, it wasn't until I started seeing beyond through uh, social media and through networking, seeing what other people were doing for their students um, and I remember this moment of realization where I said to myself, you know, there's there's these teachers doing amazing things for kids and I love my students and they deserve better than what I'm giving them. And, and it was in that moment when I realized, OK, I need to grow and I need to get better. You know, we call it a growth mindset now. But um, in that moment, I wasn't using that terminology. I just knew that sure. my kids deserve more, you know. Yeah, and that's that's a. Um... You know, I, I definitely, there's days where <laughs> you feel that, where, you know, it was late night or whatever, and you're coming in, you're just like, ah, especially now with COVID. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, that definitely rings true to me too. I, I'm, I'm wishing more now that I connected with you about soccer before we, <laughs> we have a conversation <laughs> about that. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I still think that, uh, you know, I played soccer all the way through, uh, all the way through school, um, even considered uh, collegiate soccer for for a bit, and then decided that I wanted to be a music major. I wanted to play piano, and I was a goalkeeper, so I didn't want to destroy all my fingers in college. So, um, opted out of that. But I still see myself going back to coaches, you know, at some point. Um, and I think that there's obviously there's so many parallels between coaching and teaching, kind of like you said. So, um, 
I don't think, you know, you say that you got into teaching for the wrong reason and, you know, highlighting what you just said, I don't necessarily think that's true because, you know, as a teacher, as a coach, like they're, they're so parallel that I think you got into, you got into education because you wanted to coach, but education is coaching. So it's not like you're the wrong person for the job, obviously with all the accolades. <laughs> so, well, thank you for that. Yeah. And, and I do, you know, um, I, I think I just didn't realize, um, why, I wanted to, to teach. I, I, you know, I, I really, I, I guess what I can say is I didn't realize the impact that I could have as a teacher, mm -hmm. the positive impact. I, you know, I think even if you would have asked me back when I was making those decisions, you know, do you want to make a difference in the world? Like I, I would have said, yes. Right. What, what, who wouldn't, right. You know, and actually there's a lot of studies out as we're, as we're looking at the teacher shortage right now and saying, how do we get more people into the profession? Um, Kimberly Eckert in her chapter in the book that, that, that I, uh, that just came out that you mentioned before writes about this generation Z um, our kids who are in high school right now are shown to want to make that kind of difference more than any other generation in history. They have this untapped potential, but so many of them don't see teaching as the way to do it. And just as mm -hmm. I realized that later than I should have, if we can start turning kids on to that early, uh, you know, early on in their in their high school career, and say, look, this this teaching profession, this is the way for you to do what you really want to do. Um, it's one of the ways that we can close that gap. But again, we're getting into <laughs> into some deeper conversation yeah, there, so I'll let yeah, you come around to that in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it's about time. I think we can <laughs> we can dive into that. Um, but. Uh, so coming, coming around to, you know, your career and, um, have you, you said you started at the high school. So how long ago did you transfer down to fourth and fifth grade STEM? Yeah, no, I've always been an elementary teacher, but I, oh, okay. I coached, you but coached I coached high school, high school soccer. Yeah. Okay. So okay. I, for the first 16 years of my career, I was a, a fifth grade teacher. Um, actually my first recognition was for, uh, the presidential award for teaching math, um, in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. Um, I then switched, I was a curriculum coach for two years, K-12. Um, and then landed in the job I'm in now where I'm primarily a science teacher, but I also do math support and, and technology. Okay. Um, and you, you mentioned it that you, you got the, what was the president's what? <laughs> Presidential award for, for yeah. excellence in math teaching. <laughs> do, you, do you have a wall for all of this stuff that you have? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, you know, I will say, so I, I've been blessed, um, you know, to, to get more recognition in my career than, than, um, than is necessary or, um, you know, I, I, it's been a blessing sure. for, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, but each one of those, each one of those awards gives you a different platform to be able to advocate for what you know is right in education. Um, and, you know, part of, part of me feels that weight to make sure that I am doing justice to the platform that was given to me. Uh, and I think that that's driven me in a lot of the different spaces that, you know, that you talked about, whether it's the keynotes or, or writing or, you know, um, having my own podcast in the past or, you know, all of those different things st partially stemmed out of that responsibility, I felt. Um, but also, I, I think there's an acknowledgement for those of us that have been recognized in these different ways that it shouldn't be that way, right? Like, we, you know, education should not be competitive. You shouldn't have to compete for some award to have that platform. Mm -hmm being a professional and um, sh should give you the platform to be able to make change within your profession. There, there's nobody who knows better about what needs to happen in classrooms than teachers. We serve at that Amen. intersection, right? We serve at that intersection between policy and practice. We know what the unintended consequences of bad policy are, but we don't necessarily have that voice enough. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think there's that dichotomy 
there for those of us that have been recognized, that we we feel that responsibility, but we also recognize there are so many different teachers out there that, that have something to say, that have important expertise that need to be shared, that don't have that opportunity. And, and you know, you mentioned um, that, you know, your mom and I know each other well. Part of it is through that Pennsylvania Teachers Advisory yeah. Committee. And that's what we try to do as an organization, is try and get teachers into those spaces where they can share that expertise. Yeah. And she just said on the last episode too, like once, once she got to be a finalist for PA uh, teacher of the year, she was like, I, I feel like I need to live up to this now within my district. You know, everybody's like, Oh, teacher of the year finalist. Hey, you know, yeah. so I, I get that. But um, what would you say is something that um, set you apart, I guess, and, and kind of put you in a position to be recognized? You know, um, because I, I know uh, there's plenty of, of great teachers that go unrecognized for one reason or another. So not like you said, not that the recognition is needed, but especially for, you know, at least your local community, knowing that the teachers in the school are taking leadership seriously and they're taking these initiatives and they're doing all this stuff. Um, what are some things that you did that you feel like set you apart? Well, I, I can tell you about my own journey. So I, I mentioned, you know, that the first half of my career, I was really good at being mediocre. I think if you came into my classroom, you'd see kids sitting in rows, they were on task or, you know, whatever that means, you know, there was good classroom management, but no classroom empowerment. Um, you know, they were doing what they were supposed to be doing and they would take tests and pass them and then forget everything three weeks later, like happens yeah. in most places. Right. You know, um, and what I realized is that my students were not making any kind of emotional connection with the content. They liked me as a teacher. We, we had fun in school, you know, it was, it was fine. Um, but the content wasn't coming alive for them. They weren't, they weren't doing anything important with it other than filling out workbook pages and passing tests. Right. Um, and I think my journey into uh, first project-based, uh, yeah, project-based learning, and then later problem-based learning really started to change that. And the, the philosophy in my cl classroom really became, you know, how are we going to apply what we're learning? Um, and that started in math class uh, and led to that initial recognition, you know, through the presidential award. But but I really think with the Global Teacher Prize and, and then Teacher of the Year, um, it was the way that my students were taking the content that they were learning in school and applying it for social good to make change around the world that uh, that made them stand out. So so I'll tell you I'll, I'll tell you a story. Yeah, um, that's that kind of, was, I'm glad <laughs> that's yeah. where I was going. I'm like, tell me more. <laughs> So, so we mentioned that imposter syndrome before, right? Like that, that, um, that Absolutely. overwhelming feeling. So the moment, so, so I, I told you, I switched jobs between being a curriculum coach and, uh, and a science teacher. Um, and that happened to happen the same year that I was recognized as a top 10 finalist for the global mm -hmm. teacher prize. So I had no idea what I was doing. It was the first year I'd ever taught science after uh, 18 years of my career or 19, whatever it was. Um, and I was struggling to figure out what I was supposed to be doing to make a difference, right? All of these things that I had done in my fifth grade classroom and then done as a curriculum coach were, no, were kind of applicable, but didn't really fit. And so I was feeling this incredible imposter syndrome. How can I be recognized as one of the best teachers in the world where I, I don't even know what I'm doing on Tuesday, right? When I go into my classroom. And, but what I did know was this, this um, idea that, that I needed to expose the kids in my community and my small rural community two different cultures and different kinds of people because they don't get to see that here. Um, and so we do that through video, free video conferencing software. Um, now we'll use Zoom or, or Google Hangouts, but you know, Skype, we've, we've used all the different tools that, that were available. Um, and we would play different games and connect with different classrooms. Uh, over the last seven years, I think my students have connected with something like 96 different countries. Wow. Uh, 
astronauts on the International Space Station, uh, scientists okay. in Antarctica, right? You know, so we've we've connected all over the world. But but this particular story starts with a connection where we um, we were playing a game of mystery animal with a group of kids in rural Western Kenya. So we connected with these kids, and they chose an animal, and we chose an animal, and we took turns asking yes or no questions, like 20 questions to try and see who could guess the other's animal first. And it was my way of teaching my kids that animals, that, that scientists classify animals, right? Fourth graders. Sure. Um, and what happened at the end of that call is that the school director took us on a tour of his village and he showed this dilapidated bridge that was too dangerous to cross. And he told us, he told my students, kids in kindergarten and first and second grade are not allowed to go to school if they live on the other side of the village because the bridge is too dangerous. Mm-hmm. And during the rainy season, the rain comes, the, the water comes up so high that even high school kids have to miss an entire month of school um, because, because it's too dangerous. And at the end of that call, my students came to me and they said, Mr. Soskal, that's not right. We should do something about that. Mm-hmm. And I had a decision to make in that moment. I, so I was feeling overwhelmed and this imposter syndrome and all of this curriculum that I had to cover that I was just starting to wrap my head around. And here were my students passionate about a, a social good project. They knew that they could make a difference. And so you know, in our pre-service teacher classes, they often tell us, take the, take the curriculum and find a cool way to teach it, right? Yeah. And I think that's exactly wrong. I think what we should do is take experiences that make kids want to beat down the walls of our classroom to get in and then embed the incur- curriculum into that, right? And so that's what I did. We started learning Newton's laws of motion and, and um, how loads are distributed by learning about bridges. And we built models out of uh, paper and they tested them with pennies and made them fail and then made them better and then built them out of cardboard and put rocks on them and made them fail. Uh, and eventually they sent over blueprints um, to a bridge builder in Kimalili, Kenya, um, uh, to see what it would cost to get their bridge built. Um, and the price, the price tag ended up coming back about 3,500 US uh, dollars, which is more than we would be able to raise here. But they were determined. They wanted to do it. So they held bake sales at lunch. And we had movies where they would come in and sell popcorn because we couldn't charge admission for the movies. Um, they had this great idea of um, taking pictures with a green screen on an iPad. Um, and they would uh, take, put you and your family anywhere in the world that you wanted oh, you and, and, and email it to you for a buck, right? You know. <laughs> And so over the course of the year, they raised $1,200, which was great. Um, But there were a couple of fifth grade students who came to me in January, about halfway through the year and said, what if we built a website that showed people what we were doing outside of our community? Maybe we can get some of them to chip in. And through that website, they received an extra $2,500 in donations. So at the end of the year, I was able to go and show them pictures of the bridge that they designed, where now every child in Muku Uni, Kenya, outside of Kimalili, um, can go to school regardless of where they live in that village um, because of the bridge that my students designed and fundraised for. So it's it's that kind of, and I will say, you know, so I teach in a school district that is uh, economically challenged. More than 60% of our kids live in poverty. One in four of our students goes home to at least one parent that's codependent on drugs or alcohol, which is not uncommon in in rural areas like mine. But sometimes those kids come with a lack of hope into my classroom, right, into all of our classrooms. But in that moment, every one of them knew why they were learning, and they knew their power to make a difference in the world if they applied themselves. And that's what school should be about, right? If, If we can make sure that our curriculum is being applied to make the world a better place, we give our students the opportunity to have that moment where they feel the joy of doing good for others. And and I think that's what we need to strive to make sure that that's happening more in our schools. I'm speechless. (laughs) I mean, that's (laughs) I I had goosebumps as you were telling this story. I mean, that's, that is, it's just, it's, if uh, you had that just 
that single experience as, as a teacher, it, it's almost like your entire career was worth it just for that one year to do this thing and have those kids light up for the, the social impact and all this other stuff. Um, and yet we have 30 some odd years as a career and we have the opportunity to do that every year and multiple times a year, you know? Um, so that's, that's just, it's amazing. And, um, your, your idea of bringing the learning to life, uh, I forget exactly how you said it, but, um, you know, that, that concept of making it real to their lives and not just a hypothetical learning, you know, how many times you say, when am I ever going to need this? <laughs> how yeah. many times do we hear that as teachers? Right. right? And, and so, and, and we, we fall into this false trap when we hear that comment, right? Cause you're right. We hear it all the time. And our answer usually is like, well, 10 years from now, you're going to have a job where you, whatever. Right. But, but what neuroscience tells us is that there's two different kinds of relevance, right? There's that long-term relevance, which um, does not motivate anybody at all, right? Especially kids whose frontal lobes are not fully formed. Um, and then there's and then there's immediate relevance, right? And unless we're tapping into that immediate relevance, um, we can't create the emotional connection, right? And neuroscience also tells us that you can't switch things don't move from the um, from the short term memory to long term memory without that emotional connection. And that's why, like, we learned our multiplication or uh, our long division in fourth grade. And then we passed a test and our fifth grade teachers wondered how come no one ever taught us long division, right? And then we passed a test on long division in fifth grade and our sixth grade teacher, because we just didn't care enough to transfer it to long-term memory. Yeah. So we've got to find ways to make that emotional connection for kids. And um, at least in, in my experience, a great way to do that is through um, global connection and through problem and project-based learning. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I really, it's just, it's an amazing story. Um, and you know, obviously, um, you have such passion about it, which motivates your students and motivates you. And, um, it's just, it's going to be a cycle, you know, going forward. So, um, it seems like a nice transition into, uh, your most recent publication. Um, this is not your first book. This is your second book that you were a contributor to, right? You were a contributor to, um, a book through, uh, the, the global teacher. Yeah. So, so the first book, um, uh, teaching in the fourth industrial revolution, uh, actually came. So in, in 2017, uh, a group of global teacher prize finalists, there's, uh, six of us from five different countries, two Americans, and then, uh, teachers from all over the world came together. And we knew that the theme of the global education and skills forum that year, uh, which is where education ministers and, um, policymakers from around the world get together to talk about the future of education. Uh, we knew they were going to be focused on education in 2030 and beyond. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we as practitioners felt that um, just as we were talking before, nobody understands these issues the way that, that we do because we see that intersection of policy and practice. And so we wanted to put together a series of essays on the topic uh, from a practitioner's point of view. Uh, and the five of the six of us got together in Toronto um, over a weekend to put those essays together. And at the end of the weekend, we realized we had a lot more than uh, a series of essays, that it was a lot more impactful than that. Uh, and so we pitched it to Routledge, to a publisher who um, agreed to publish it in time for the Global Education Skills Forum, where we ended up launching the book. Um, but that book right now has sold thousands of copies around the world. It's been translated into Spanish uh just got translated into Vietnamese. That that uh, language just became available. I believe it's available in Ukrainian as well. Um, so it's actually it's uh, it's gone viral all over the world, um, and it really focuses on how do we use technology effectively um, to teach kids to to be prepared for their future. Um, and 
one of the things that we really focus on is what I was just talking about, um, making sure that technology is used to close equity gaps, um, because those that have technology often, that those gaps get larger, right? Because those that have technology and have ability get more and more, more political power, yeah. more yeah. education, more uh, money, yeah. whatever. And those that don't have fall further behind, right? Yeah. And so there's self-driving cars in Pittsburgh and um, and 17% of the world lives without electricity, right? right? So using technology to close those gaps. Um, but also, you know, we want our schools to be technologically relevant because we want when kids come to school, they need to see technology or they're going to know that it's not real. Right. Because the rest of their life is infused with technology. But at the same time, we need to make sure that our schools uh, stay rooted in the things that are most important, building relationships, compassion, empathy, humanity. Um, and the book really talks from a practitioner's point of view on how we find that intersection. Um, and so my contributions are really uh, not just the stories of what my students have done, um, but taking stories from students all over the world. Um, and, and in my two chapters, I talk about one, um, what does this look like, right? What, is, what does this look like in our classrooms, in our school systems? Um, but then the, the third chapter of the book that I authored um, really focuses on how do we take these experiences and help close those equity gaps? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was excited to speak with you, one, because I knew that you're just a fantastic uh teacher um but two you you take on these uh opportunities to to write and to publish and to research and like you said it's coming from the practitioner perspective right and that's been a shift for me in the last I don't know, two three months with this podcast was I, I originally started it reaching out to uh professors and people at universities doing research and trying to find ways to make it applicable to k-12 but really i mean uh, to me now it's it's more of getting teachers in K-12 to start doing that research instead of relying on it coming from um, the universities and, and whatnot. So um, yeah, having, having somebody who is currently a teacher, but still has now published two, two books and done the research for those books um, was, was just so cool. So um, transitioning now to your most recent book, which uh, launched what you said the week before election day, right? It came out uh, October 30th was the official launch date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, this book uh, uh, flipped the system. Um, where, where was the motivation for this book? I mean, why, why write this book, what, the, the title and, and the subject? Why write that now? Yeah. So, um, one of the co-authors on teaching in the fourth industrial revolution was a, um, a Dutch teacher, uh, by the name of Yelmer Evers, who was also a global teacher prize finalist the same years that I, uh, I was. So we got to know each other pretty well. Um, and he, he's the co-editor of the original flip the system book, which came out uh, in the Netherlands. Right and really had a global focus. Um, and his idea for flipping the system along with uh, Renee Nyber was that right now our education systems worldwide are very hierarchical uh, and very top-down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the national government tells states or provinces what to do. Those states and provinces tell school districts, school districts tell their administrators, administrators tell, uh, you know, tell teachers, uh, and everything is coercive, right? So they build in coercive structures within that system to force those below them in that hierarchical ladder to, to sure. do things. Um, and and uh, they don't make this case, but I do in my book that, that we take that and then we extend it one more rung down and we do the same thing to our students, right? We, we find these levers and these, uh, these coercive ways to make them comply in our, in our classrooms. Um, the idea behind flipping the system is to flatten that hierarchy. And instead of having a coercive system that's top down, have all of those different members see each other as partners in trying to educate not just students, but the community. Um, and instead of doing it in a way that's coercive, doing it in a way that's supportive and inspiring. So it starts with us in classrooms saying to our students, 
what can we do to help you be successful? And then eliciting their feedback so that we make sure we're meeting their needs, right? And then demanding of our administrators that they ask us the same question. What do you need to be successful as a teacher? And we trust you to know what you need as a teacher because you're a professional, right? You know, mm -hmm. and then districts saying to administrators, what do you need to be successful in your building, right? And so on and so forth within the system. Um, and the case that Yelmer made and that I make specific to the U.S. system is that if we do this, if we flip the system in that way, um, we can start to solve some of the problems that have been caused because our, our education system is out of balance. Um, and we can talk a little more about what that means, where it's out of balance. Um, but that's really the general purpose behind Flip This System. So uh, Yelmer came to me early on years ago, um, probably about three or four years ago now, and asked me to do a U.S. version of this book. There's been versions in the U.K. and Australia and, and Sweden that have come out um, since the original. Um, and originally I told him, I, I just can't. I'm, I'm too overwhelmed with my Teacher of the Year responsibilities. Okay. With you know, um, But it became apparent in the last uh, three or four years that... Um, that the ills in our society that we see, a lot of them, um, the, the lack of discourse, the lack of ability to have nuanced conversations about complex yeah. issues, yeah. Um, the, the hyper-partisanship, the, the lack of um, belief in, in, uh, in science and anti-intellectualism, that a lot of these things are failings of public education, that uh, our hyper-focus on education solely being for economic purposes, solely being to prepare workers for the economy has allowed us or forced us to ignore developing people as human beings, um, mm -hmm. making sure that students' holistic needs are being met, and also has prevented us from allowing them to understand how those unique talents and passions that they have, how their self fits into the society that's educating them. How do they have nuanced conversations? How do they, you know, th those things should be practiced in school. You, you know, I, I talk about in, in my chapter in the book, a lot of our mission statements talk about uh, how we're supposed to be developing good citizens and contributing yeah. members of society. But yet children are not allowed to be democratic members of their own schools or classrooms. You can't develop democratic citizens in a place where democracy is absent. If kids have no voice and no autonomy within the system, we, we can't expect them at 18 to just magically graduate and know how to participate in a, in a democratic system. Uh, and so we need to, we need to make this flip, uh, make this change in our system uh, in order to make sure that our democracy and our society is more healthy. So that was the, that was the motivation behind me putting this together. Yeah. Um, and obviously a ton of passion uh, to it there. And I I've talked about it before on this, on this podcast, I forget who it was and which episode it was, but um, the notion that our education system, when it was um, built early on, it was built modeled after business, right? You have, Kind of like you said, you've got some structures in place that are very much like, well, this person oversees this person and this person oversees this person. And we're going to put them in rows because that's what factories are doing and, you know, all, all this other stuff. Um, and the uh, there's definitely been a shift away from that and towards uh, student center classrooms and, um, you know, some of these buzzwords that we hear. But um, how do you balance uh, the the idea that, well, I need to invite my students into the into the process, into understanding, you know, this is what we're going to learn. This is why we're going to learn it. But then uh, like, how do you balance turning over too much power to the students, I guess? <laughs> yeah, no, I think this is, this is an amazing question, right? And this is really, um, I, I light up when I talk about this, because this is what my chapter in the book really is about, right? So there's, there's 32 different chapter authors, and I'm just one of them in the book. I, I edited all of the chapters, but, mm -hmm. um, but mine is the one that I, you know, obviously that I wrote. And, and so I've, uh, I've got some 
uh, deep-rooted passion for, for what I wrote about. Um, <laughs> but what I talk about in that chapter is that uh, democracy itself um, is a balance between liberty and equality, right? Those are two fundamental American uh, values that we have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, liberty and equality. But they're, but they're opposed to each other, right? So absolute liberty is anarchy, right? Anybody yeah. can do whatever they want at any time yep. and you can infringe upon other people's liberty and right, you know, so obviously we can't have complete liberty in, in our society, right? Complete equality, on the other hand, means that everybody is exactly the same, gets exactly the same, has exactly the same wealth, right? You know, um, and it takes such an oppressive authoritarian gov- government to be able to make sure that that happens, that you end up with with totalitarianism, right? So yeah. obviously that's the other extreme. Right. But they're both fundamentally American values and, and our arguments, our political arguments during normal times, right? Not in this hyper crazy partisan time, <laughs> but but during normal times or where, where to draw that line, right? Do we draw it a little closer to, you know, libertarianism? Do we draw a little bit closer to social democracy, right? Where do we draw that line in there? And And I think the same is true in our classrooms, right? We are, as teachers, we are the educational leader of our classrooms. We can't see that. We can't give that over. That is that is true. That's your job yeah. as a professional. Yeah. But at the same time, just as within a democracy, we should give as much liberty as possible um, to citizens, as long as they're not infringing on the liberty of others. We should do the same in our classroom. Students should have the ability to drive some of the curriculum decisions. They should have the ability to choose how they demonstrate um, whether or not they've learned. They should um, be involved in, in choosing who they work with in order to be able to, to do that. What problems they want to solve, right? You know, they should have some say in that. Um, and it's possible even down to like the kindergarten level. And, and we could talk about stories of how that happens. But obviously you need to give more support, you know, to, to younger kids. Um, but it can be done even at that level. Um, and the same- anarchy is much closer to the surface in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> it is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely true. Um, but at the same time, we need to make sure that there is some measure of equity and making sure that um, that there are certain things that society needs us to teach uh, children um, within the public education system for our society to function. Right. Yeah. That, that we have to we have to focus on those things at the same time. And it's our job as a teacher to balance those. Right. To come up with that balance. Um, and, and so in a lot of ways, it's true that our public education schools and our and our classrooms mirror the democracy that we're trying to prepare kids for. But if we don't run them that way, then we never prepare kids to be able to make good decisions. And and I think that's one of the big failings that we've had is, you know, we never allow, you know, we talk about failure a lot, right? You know, and how failure should be a learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. But but that's true within, you know, like STEM kind of work and, and that. But it's also just true within managing what, a, you know, what the, the norms of a classroom or a school are. Um, and so I, Sean Bellamy is a, a teacher in the UK and he runs um, a school that is totally democratic. Uh, every decision from whether or not they should paint the walls green to whether or not they should fire a teacher is made democratically between students and teachers. Everybody has one vote. Right. It's an extreme version of what democracy would look like. And, and obviously it's not a public school, but that's that's the model they developed. And um, yeah. those that are interested should totally look them up because it's awesome. But but one of the things he talks about is uh, they were they had a problem within the school that kids were showing up to class late because they were going to a convenience mart across the street. And so the the governing committee that was in charge of making decisions got together and decided that the convenience market was going to be off limits, that nobody was allowed to go and visit that anymore so that they would solve that problem. And then because they were all hungry and wanted a snack, they all went to the convenience market to go get a snack after they made that decision. And the next day they realized how foolish the decision was. The problem wasn't the convenience market. It was that people were being disrespectful. And so because they realized that, they were able to change course and democratically come up with a new rule. 
But how that would look in a regular school district is that that kind of decision would be made at the board level, right? Or the administration level. They would have no idea whether or not it worked or not, or if it had unintended consequences. Teachers and and students would be upset that the rule was oppressive or didn't meet the needs and that the problem wasn't solved. And nothing would get solved and nobody would learn to make better decisions. And that's really what our education system looks like, right? We, We want kids to learn how to make good choices in a democracy, but we don't give them the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard it? Like one person ruined it for everybody. And that's right. Yeah. It seems like that's, that's what it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it just seems like this, this book has uh, so many different nuggets in it that you can pull out. Um, I mean, you, you even mentioned, um, what was it? The, uh, you have a, a keynote that you just reminded me, I keep jumping back to these again, cause they're fresh in my mind. Uh, why teachers are more important now than ever, I think was one of your keynotes and talked about like this, we're moving towards digitalization of education. And obviously it is out of necessity for this year. Um, but your argument that teachers are never going to be out of a job because of all of these nuanced social interactions, teaching people how to be good people <laughs> that yeah. doesn't come from machine learning or, or online or digital learning. So, um, yeah, it, in some ways, that's that's almost an easier case to make now, right? Because people have realized, yeah. right? I mean, a year ago, people would have said, oh, well, we can just put kids online and let them watch videos and then you don't need a teacher, right? Well, everyone realized back in March that that wasn't true, yeah. <laughs> right? You know, you know, everyone, everyone that was learning at home and realizing that, oh, these videos are not not quite the same education that I want for my student. Um, yeah, so so we realized that that's, that's not true, that, that teachers have an invaluable uh, role to play. Um, but really, you know, Flip the System is broken into five sections. Uh, the first section lays out the, um, the foundation for what is the role of education in a democracy, right? And, and we answer those big questions that we have to. The second question is, or the second uh, section is all about equity. If we're not making sure that everyone has equal opportunity within our education system, then everyone's not going to have equal opportunity within our democracy. And so we have to get that right. We have to make sure that our that our education system is equitable. Um, the third section is on making sure that we're educating the whole child, making sure that we're not just focused on any one aspect, but that kids are uh, that they have access to the arts, that they have access to the humanities, uh, that uh, that we're educating our refugee and immigrant students, that we're that we're making sure that plurality. Um, is a value that that we're um, that we restore in America. That diversity of opinion is a positive and, and not something mm-hmm. that should be um, not something that should be fought against. Um, uh, the the fourth section is why teachers need to be politically active um, and why teachers have to be agents of change within the system. Uh, everything that we do in our classrooms is political. Um, you, you may hear teachers sometimes say like you know oh I'm not into politics I, you know I don't get involved in that. But every you know if if we are educating future citizens. Every textbook choice we make, every pedagogical choice that we make, um, every decision on whether or not we're going to let kids come up with the norms of our classroom or not, all of those are political decisions that impact our future democracy. Um, So teachers have to, you don't get to not be political, you're in a political profession. Uh, And then finally, the last section is how do we support teachers? How do we make sure that teachers have the support that they needed, that we're bringing in um, diversity into our teaching force, that we're recruiting and retaining teachers? Uh, how do we make sure we do that to, so, because teachers are so important? Uh, how do we make sure that the system is sustainable with quality teachers? Yeah. Um, I, lo- I love reading books that are are broken out, obviously very well structured like that, and then end with this is how we go do it <laughs> instead of just, here's a theoretical concept. Good luck. Um, but that, how, how is all this, uh, how does this come together? So, um, before we, we, uh, I'm looking at the time again, just uh, before we head out here, um, 
where would be one place uh i know that one of my exit questions you this might be the answer then too and that's totally fine but where would be one place or two places that you you think teachers who are um just looking for ways to create more democracy in their classroom you know especially when you say okay well i've got this curriculum and it says here's lesson 1.1 here's lesson 1.2 and here's lesson 1.3 and it's all laid out for me how do i start to bring in some of that democratic choice to the students um with a, a a structure that's already in place for what they're supposed to learn. Yeah. So, so two, two aspects of that. Uh, number one is um, your administrator probably is only in your classroom two or three times a year, if that, if that so is. all of the, all of those other times do what you know is best for kids. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and hopefully you can do what's best for kids when that administrator is in your building yeah. also, or in your classroom. Um, but you know, you you have academic freedom to take liberties with those lessons to make sure that they're taught in a way that gives kids opportunity. Um, and so look for opportunities to do that. And it doesn't you don't have to radically change your classroom all at once. Right. Start with one lesson a month or one lesson a week or, you know, try and bring in some new things, you know, create, you know, uh, it's it's become famous. But that, you know, 20 percent time with Google where, where kids get to right, work on, yeah. you know, you know, find, find a way to bring in some kind of choice like that into your uh, into your classroom and understand that just like kids learn from failure, you're going to fail and you're going to learn from it. And, and and you're being able to model that learning from failure for your students is just as important as anything you're going to teach them. So that, that's Absolutely. that's fine. But but the second thing that I'll point out is, so yeah, you have that pedagogical responsibility to your students. Um, but if, if your curriculum is that structured uh, and that strict that you don't have academic freedom, um, then you need to be advocating for change, uh, whether it's within your teacher's union, whether it's by, um, you know, uh, starting your own podcast or writing blogs <laughs> or just, or just sharing stories of, um, not specific students, but sharing stories, uh, and narratives from your classroom of what's going wrong so that other people outside of your classroom understand it. You know, th there is always someone telling the story of what's going on in our schools, but too often it's not us as teachers. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the story that's being shared is a false one that is that, that, uh, casts us in a negative light. So get out there and tell your story and, and advocate for change. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like even going back to your your story about building the bridge. I mean, the the year you get this scope and sequence of a curriculum, right? And it's a that might happen where they all of a sudden they get interested in this one thing, and you say, "Oh, well, that lesson doesn't happen till March. So what do I do?" <laughs> right, and you, know? and you know, it's what's interesting about that story is so for years that was my 18th, 19th year of teaching. For years, I had been advocating to like like ditch the textbooks, right? <laughs> you know, and actually, if if you haven't read Matt Miller's ditch ditch that textbook, right? Like there you go. I just just let's give Matt a shot. <laughs> but right, like, but like get rid of your textbook, you, like you know. If they're too binding, teachers should be able to teach the curriculum in the way that they know is best, right? And that's scary for a lot of teachers because we've fallen into this trap of using it as a crutch. But then I got thrown into the science classroom where I'm like, all right, you don't know the curriculum. You've got a bunch of textbooks sitting there on the shelf. Are you going to use them or not, <laughs> right? You know, um, and I, I made the choice that I was going to live by what I, what I believed. Um, and so it made it easier to have that flexibility. Um, and and I'll, I'll share, you know, so people talk about test scores. I think the test scores are a terrible metric of success. Um, but for those of you worried about them, the first year I taught science, my kids were 65% proficient on the state assessments, which is about average. The second year it went up to 89. The third year it was 97. It wasn't because I spent any time at all focusing on any state tests. As a matter of fact, I don't care if they got a 65 the, the third year. They just happened to get better because they were so engaged in the content that it stuck in their long-term memory. Yeah. Yeah, create that emotional connection to the learning and the yeah, the test will take care of themselves. There you go. Um, 
Yeah. Fantastic. Well, again, uh, for anybody who wants to check out the book, we'll have it linked in our show notes. But uh, again, it is Flip the System US, How <laughs> Teachers Can Transform Education and Save Democracy, published by Routledge. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we are at the time. Let's go into our exit ticket questions. These are the same four questions that I ask everyone who comes on. And the first one is, do you have a book recommendation that teachers should go read? Yeah. So in addition to my books, uh, I would highly <laughs> recommend, highly recommend the, uh, the original Flip the System book and the other uh, Flip the System uh, books in the series, uh, because even though they focus on different systems, um, they're, they're all applicable to the U.S. Um, but also, I think uh, Paulo Freire's um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is, should be mandatory teach, uh, reading for anyone mm -hmm. in the classroom. Um, and then if you're looking for something lighter, like ditch that textbook by Matt Miller would be awesome. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I, um, uh, I had Fernando Nidich out of, um, uh, he, uh, oh goodness, I forget which university he's at right now, but he talked about, he, he grew up in Brazil and talked about, uh, that book as well. So, um, yeah. That that'll it's on my short list uh, for this Christmas season. <laughs> well, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I know that we're running out of time, but one of my favorite conversations. My son is now a freshman in high school, and he's uh, he's taking an intro to education course, and he's like, "Dad, I might want to be a teacher." So I'm like, he was talking about um, progressive um, educational models, and I'm like, "So who do you like better, Friere or Dewey?" Right? And I got to have this conversation with my freshman son, which was just awesome. So if you haven't read any John Dewey, make sure you do that also. But there, you there you go, and I will link all of those at our show notes page. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, question two is what resource, uh, this could be a, a hard copy resource or just a digital resource, uh, should teachers go take a look at? Yeah, so um, I, I definitely think virtual field trips uh, are great. Um, friend of mine, uh, Joe Grabowski up in um, Canada, uh, runs a site called uh, um, Explore by the Seat of Your Pants that, that connects <laughs> with Google Classrooms. And he uh, connects with Nat Geo Explorers. Um, to take you and some of your students on some to some of the coolest places on the planet. So that's yeah. one. Um, and then I'm going to also plug uh, Kuhn Timber's Climate Action Project. Um, all of the resources you need to get your students, no matter what subject area you teach, uh, involved in taking action to make the climate uh, more sustainable um, and, and solve some of our climate issues. Um, but that's an awesome project also. Both of those are online and free. Awesome. Question number three is what piece of advice would you want to give teachers, especially those who might be just starting out their careers? Yeah, Jennifer Gonzalez, uh, Cult of Pedagogy, wrote a blog yes. a couple of years ago that has become famous. And I think it's still the best piece of teacher advice that I've ever heard. Uh, find your marigold, right? So um, when you plant tomato plants, and we do this in our school garden, you plant marigolds next to them because they keep the pests away. Um, find your teachers that are going to inspire you and keep pests away and keep you, uh, <laughs> keep you fired up to do what you know is best for kids. Uh, and then we never plant, uh, you know, plant crops underneath walnut trees because uh, they make the soil toxic. So avoid the walnut trees, find your marigolds, uh, whether they're in your, in your school or online. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, obviously that's just find find the things that are going to keep you enjoying education because, you know, that dropout rate after the first couple of years is pretty steep. And uh, any way that you can avoid that or, you know, as a community, us as education or as, us as teachers can avoid that. Um, yeah. Find find that one thing that's going to keep you coming back for more. Um, very cool. And then the last thing is, if anybody wants to reach out to you, uh, where should they find you online? <laughs> yeah, so easiest to reach out on Twitter, uh, at msoskil, S-O-S-K-I-L, or uh, michaelsoskil.com uh, has all kinds of teaching resources, um, all of the keynotes that I've given, videos, 
Yeah. Um, you know, websites, uh, ev- everything you, you would need, you can find right there. <laughs> so why do we have it? Is just go to his website, <laughs> go to <laughs> his website. Go. Didn't even need to listen to the podcast. Um, <laughs> no, but you, you also have some, uh, interviews, uh, for the book. Um, not every chapter was an interview, but you have some interviews, uh, for, uh, this flip the system U S book, um, yep. that are on there too. So, um, some great conversations there. Yeah. Mike Soskal, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, this is fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And there you go. Wow. I mean, you can hear it in his in the way that he speaks. You can hear it in his tone. He is just so passionate about everything that he does uh, for the world of education. So special thanks to Mike for joining me on this episode. The biggest takeaway that I think I got from this, uh, aside from uh, all the different things that we are able to do as teachers, the, the biggest thing was that this next generation, Generation Z, right, which are current high school kids, are shown to want to make a difference in the world right but so many of them don't see teaching as a way to do it which i just i i find so surprising um we can start turning kids on to teaching uh as a way to make a difference right that's that's kind of one of the things that we can do uh with the influence that we have so i was actually curious uh i started doing this with my kids last week um we've been singing the song winter wonderland (laughs) if you know it there's a verse in there that reads Later on, we'll conspire as we dream by the fire to face unafraid the plans that we've made walking in a winter wonderland. And when I took a second and I read those lyrics, I realized that there's this great lesson hidden in that text, right? To dream big dreams and and to not be afraid to pursue them. So I started asking my kids what their dreams were for their lives. Um, And naturally, in the United States, our identities are so often tied with our careers and uh, I was in awe of how many students, you know, ages six to 10 were telling me that they wanted to be in the army or in the Navy or be doctors and nurses. And yes, even a few teachers. <laughs> but what really shocked me was how, how surprisingly few mentioned wanting to be a professional athlete, which, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a, a professional soccer star, right? Um, but it was it was such a testament to this generation wants to make a difference, and uh, you're seeing it at the collegiate level too. As um, enrollment in nursing schools has almost doubled in the midst of this pandemic, right? This generation wants to help. It wants to make a difference, and we all know this as teachers that um, you know being being a teacher is is a calling where you can leave such a great lasting impact. But um, maybe we should start talking more about this with some of our students um, because like, like, uh, like Mike says, you know, being a teacher, you have the opportunity to be that positive change agent, um, which I love. So I'll leave you with that thought. Um, I won't even go into how you can uh, sign up for our news, our email newsletter, uh, join our Facebook group, uh, purchase some merch uh, or some books to support the show. Check out the contest that is currently running now through the end of the year. I'm not going to mention any of that <laughs> because you're going to find everything on our show notes page again at jabadoo.com slash show 25. So I hope you take this winter break to decompress a bit to find some of that much needed rest and relaxation. And I will see you back on January 4th for the second half of season two. But until then, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you, I appreciate you, and I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.